Today's C.S. Lewis Daily continues the, his essay about learning in wartime. He goes on to say, That is the essential nature of the learned life as I see it, but it has indirect values that are especially important today. If all the world were Christian, it might not matter if all the world were uneducated. But as it is, a cultural life will exist outside the church, whether it exists inside or not. To be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemies on their own ground, would be throw down our weapons and to betray our uneducated brethren who have, under God, no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. Good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. The cool intellect must work not only against cool intellect on the other side, but against the muddy heathen mysticisms which deny intellect altogether. Most of all, perhaps, we need intimate knowledge of the past, not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future, and yet need something to set against the present to remind us that the basic assumptions that have been quite different in different periods, and that much which seems certain to the uneducated, is merely temporary fashion. A man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar has lived in many times, and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of his own age. The learned life, then, is, for some, a duty. At the moment it looks as if it were your duty. I am well aware that there may seem to be an almost comic discrepancy between the high issues we have been considering and the immediate task you may be sat down to such as the anglo-saxon sound laws or chemical formulae but there is a similar shock awaiting us in every vocation a young priest finds himself involved in choir treats and a young subaltern in accounting for pots of jam it is well that it should be so it weeds out the vain windy people and keeps in those who are both humble and tough on that kind of difficulty we need waste no sympathy but the peculiar difficulty imposed on you by the war is another matter, and of it I would again repeat what I have been saying in one form or another ever since I started. Do not let your nerves and emotions lead you into thinking your predicament more abnormal than it really is. Perhaps it may be useful to mention the three mental exercises which may serve as defenses against the three enemies which war raises up against the scholar. The first enemy is excitement, the tendency to think and feel about the war when we had intended to think about our work. The best defense is a recognition that in this, as in everything else, the war has not really raised up a new enemy, but only aggravated an old one. There are always plenty of rivals to our work. We are always falling in love or quarreling, looking for jobs or fearing to lose them, getting ill and recovering, following public affairs. If we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to our work. The only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly that they seek it while the conditions are still unfavorable. Favorable conditions never come. There are, of course, moments when the pressure of the excitement is so great that only superhuman self-control could resist it. They come both in war and peace. We must do the best we can. The second enemy is frustration, the feeling that we shall not have time to finish. If I say to you that no one has time to finish that the longest human life leaves a man in any branch of learning a beginner, I shall seem to you to be saying something quite academic and theoretical. You would be surprised if you knew how soon one begins to feel the shortness of the tether, how many things, even in middle life, we have to say, no time for that, too late now, and not for me. But nature herself forbids you to share that experience. A more Christian attitude which can be attained at any age is that of leaving futurity in God's hands. We may as well, for God will certainly retain it. 
whether we live it to him or not. Never, in peace or war, commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. Happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lightly and works from moment to moment as to the Lord. It is only our daily bread that we are encouraged to ask for. The present is the only time at which any duty can be done or any grace received. The third enemy is fear. War threatens us with death and pain. No man, especially no Christian who remembers Gethsemane, need try to attain a stoic indifference about these things. But we can guard against the illusions of the imagination. We think of the streets of Warsaw and contrast the deaths there suffered with an abstraction called life. But there is no question of death or life for any of us, only a question of this death or of that, of a machine gun bullet now or a cancer forty years later. What does war do to death? It certainly does not make it more frequent. 100% of us die, and the percentage cannot be increased. It puts several deaths earlier, but I hardly suppose that is what we fear. Certainly, when the moment comes, it will make little difference how many years we have behind us. Does it increase our chances of a painful death? I doubt it. As far as I can find out, what we call natural death is usually preceded by suffering— and a battlefield is one of the very few places where one has a reasonable prospect of dying with no pain at all. Does it decrease our chances of dying at peace with God? I cannot believe it. If active service does not persuade a man to prepare for death, what conceivable concatenation of circumstances would? Yet war does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. The only reason why the cancer at 60 or the paralysis at 75 do not bother us is that we forget them. War makes death real to us, and that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. They thought it good for us to be always aware of our mortality. I am inclined to think they were right. All the animal life in us, all schemes of happiness that are centered in this world, were always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it. Now the stupidest of us knows we see unmistakably the sort of universe in which we have all long been living and must come to terms with it. If we had foolish, unchristian hopes about human culture, they are now shattered. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the soul of man, we are disillusioned and not a moment too soon. But if we thought that for some souls... And at some times, the life of learning humbly offered to God was in its own small way one of the appointed approaches to the divine reality and the divine beauty which we hope to enjoy hereafter. Well, that, we can think so still. So, in accordance with some of those meditations on kind of the reality of death and suffering, I would like to start reading with our C.S. Lewis daily little pieces from Kazo Kitamori's book, which is the theology of the pain of God. And so I will start reading that with our C.S. Lewis daily, um, every day, probably beginning tomorrow. For now, as always, this short episode of C.S. Lewis daily has been sponsored by Prometheus Studies, a book of meditations by Jen Finelli, Finding God in Palabolus, Tarantulas, Thermodynamics, and Mario, available at Barnes & Noble and anywhere else that books are sold online. Have a lovely evening.